This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Earlier this year, in a speech titled Leveraging Regulatory Cooperation to Protect America's Investors, SEC Commissioner Allison Heron Lee highlighted several key policy and regulatory matters where, she believes, there is a lot of work to do. Those areas include private markets, where she would like to enhance investor protection and increase transparency, and ESG, where she would like to update the SEC's disclosure regime to meet the needs and demands of investors. We are very excited to have Commissioner Lee with us to talk about private markets and ESG regulation, as well as some lessons we might glean from the Star Trek series. Today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast. Keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments, with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. As I said, we are very excited. We are honored to have with us today Commissioner Allison Heron Lee. And we're going to cover two big topics on this episode, both of which are very near and dear to her heart, I know. Uh, we're going to talk about regulating private markets, and we are going to talk about ESG disclosures. A lot of ground to cover, and since I know that our listeners would much rather hear from the commissioner than us, we want to just go (laughs) ahead and jump in. So, Chris, why don't you kick us off with a little bit of background on Commissioner Lee? Allison Heron Lee was appointed to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission by President Donald Trump and sworn in as a commissioner in July of 2019. Commissioner Lee was later designated acting chair of the commission by President Joe Biden on January 21st of 2021 a role she held until current chair Gary Gensler was sworn in in April. Before she became a commissioner, Ms. Lee lectured and taught courses internationally in Spain and Italy on financial regulation and corporate law. She also served for over a decade in various roles at the SEC, including as counsel to Commissioner Kara Stein and as senior counsel in the Division of Enforcement's Complex Financial Instruments Unit. In addition, she has served as a special assistant U.S. attorney, was a member of the American Bar Association's Committee on Public Company Disclosure, and participated on a USAID project in Armenia, assisting in the drafting of periodic reporting and disclosure provisions for a comprehensive law of the Republic of Armenia on securities market regulation. Prior to her government service, Commissioner Lee spent several years in private practice, where she was a partner at Sherman & Howard, focusing on securities, antitrust, and commercial litigation. Commissioner Lee, we're honored to have you. Welcome to Insecurities. Thank you, Kurt and Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so as I mentioned up top, we're going to cover two big topics today, private markets and ESG. Uh, Let's start things off with a look at private offerings, the implications of a shift in capital from public to private markets, and areas where the SEC may step in. First, let's level set on the public-private divide. Businesses have a variety of options to raise investor capital. A common way is to sell equity, giving investors an ownership stake in the company. Companies may sell equity shares privately or publicly, 
And depending on the route they choose, there may be limitations on who is allowed to invest in the company and what those companies are required to disclose to investors, regulators, and the market. When we talk about public markets, we're thinking about companies whose shares trade publicly on the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, or another public exchange. These companies are required to register with and make periodic reports to the SEC and generally comply with the federal securities laws. Public companies are regarded by many as safer, more transparent, more efficient, and more liquid. Private markets, on the other hand, refers to the private sale or private placement of equity by companies that are exempt from SEC registration and reporting requirements. Simply put, they do not trade on public markets. Describing the private and public markets, Commissioner Lee commented in a statement on amendments to the exempt offering framework that, quote, the public markets are designed to, and to a remarkable degree succeed at, offering a fair shake to the so-called mom-and-pop investor vis-a-vis a wealthy hedge fund. What's more, the discipline imposed by public markets drives more efficient capital allocation, which in turn drives our economy. Exempt private offerings have traditionally served an important role in providing capital for smaller and medium-sized companies, often along their path to the public markets. It is well understood that retail investors operate at a severe disadvantage in the private market because of information asymmetries and other power imbalances, end quote. So let's unpack that a little bit. Now, in, in the Trump administration and during former Chair Jay Clayton's tenure, it was expected that the SEC would pursue a broad deregulatory agenda. Of course, we can debate the extent to which that actually played out, but I think we can all agree that an area that there were some significant deregulatory efforts impacting the private markets, things like expanding the pool of investors who are eligible to buy unregistered securities and efforts to simplify the process for small firms to raise capital. This has arguably resulted in a shift from public to private markets, and in a recent speech, Commissioner Lee observed that, quote, perhaps the single most significant development in securities markets in the new millennium has been the explosive growth of private markets, end quote. So, Commissioner, what what we would like to know is, what have been the consequences of these regulatory shifts, and how has the deregulation of capital raising in the private markets impacted the public markets? Well, thank you for that question, because it is one that I have um, tried to focus uh, the commission's attention on and the public. I think it's one we need to be paying careful attention to. So you mentioned, and it's true, that the commission has taken a number of regulatory actions in recent years, not just during the, um, the Trump administration, but prior to that as well, but certainly a a fair chunk of them occurring during the last administration to ease restrictions around capital raising in the private markets. And some of that was in response to legislative mandates like in the Jobs Act, but a lot of it has been discretionary. And the so-called harmonization efforts that were undertaken under the prior administration included numerous and very significant changes to the exempt offering framework, meaning to the framework that's there for private companies. And it has made that area much more attractive and much simpler for companies to stay in and to operate in and not be kind of compelled toward the public market. So we had amendments that we would use to raise offering limits for three different types of exempt offerings. We relaxed certain statutorily imposed investment limitations in the space for certain investors, we shortened, and this one was particularly important, 
We shortened the integration safe harbor period, which is a, I know gonna, getting a little bit weedsy here, but we shortened something we call the integration safe harbor period from six months to 30 days. That makes it very difficult for regulators to keep track of and ensure that each exemption is being carefully applied as opposed to sort of them all being put together in one big pot. So that one had a big effect in my view. We expanded the use of test the waters. We permitted the creation under crowdfunding of special purpose vehicles. So we did a lot in that space. And and I would go back even further and say that, look at the change that we made in 2013 to lift the prohibition on general solicitation under Rule 506, which is one of our private market rules, so that you can actually generally solicit even in the private realm. That was traditionally a dividing line between public and private markets that has been removed. So those are just a few examples, you know, of of kind of what has happened over time. And as we've gone about making those changes, we've done economic analysis that looks at the consequences of these individual adjustments. And, and, you know, one could quibble over how how in-depth those analyses have been, but here's what they didn't do. We didn't look broadly at the overall effect of all of the changes we've made to really understand the, you know, kind of how what we're doing in the private realm affects how companies look at and consider going into the public realm. And there's some really good scholarship out there on this subject. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out um, Renee Jones, who is our current director of the Division of Corporation Finance, has done a lot of great research in this area. So as Professor Elizabeth Fontenay at Duke, and you know, they've looked at the traditional incentives for public offerings and how we may have altered those incentives by easing restrictions on private capital raising so that the traditional trade-off that once existed is no longer there. You know, I, I think this is something I, I think the commission needs to take a step back, look at the bigger picture, think about how these two markets are interacting and, and how we ought to consider what are the consequences for investors here, because I think it's quite clear that the best opportunities for most investors remains in the public markets. So we have a really strong interest in ensuring that market remains robust and continues to create opportunities for investors. Commissioner, I want to hone in on one of those issues between public and private markets, and it goes back to the first accounting class I ever took as a hopeful CPA. The professor came forward and said, you know, the numbers are very important, but the devil is in the footnotes. Uh, Those public disclosures are the heart of our federal securities regulatory framework and a way to evaluate those financial statements and those regular reports. But if we're making it easier now for companies to raise capital in the private markets, as Kurt described, fewer companies are required to actually comply with the SEC's reporting and disclosure rules, those beautiful accounting footnotes. We're expanding markets that are by nature less transparent. But at the same time, we're expanding that pool of investors who may be able to invest in those less transparent private markets. How does the actual and perceived lack of transparency in the private market affect investors, both in terms of the risks in individual private investments, particularly for retail investors, and in terms of the overall lack of visibility into that market for regulators and the public? Sure, that's a good question. Um, I have to say, though, I'm, I'm going to adopt your um, phrase of beautiful accounting footnotes. I like that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because I agree. Um, I agree. And, and, the, and there's a wealth of information that's not in the line items, but rather in, in the footnotes. Um, but look, let, me, let me get to your question about the lack of transparency here. So when it comes to individual investors in the private markets, I think it's well understood that the lack of transparency, among other things, 
makes these investments riskier. Um, and that's really not a controversial proposition. It's why we have a structure in place that limits the ability of private issuers to access retail investors. Um, you can see some of the consequences of those risks if you look at data from organizations like NASA, the North American Securities Administrators Association, and others that, you know, showing the incidence of fraud in private markets. But even, even if you set aside fraud risk, there are just pronounced information asymmetries that naturally disadvantage smaller investors. So from a policy perspective, that implicates the questions about, you know, how do we define an accredited investor, meaning an investor who we have determined has the sophistication to, to both analyze and bear the risk of loss that comes with the higher risks and the lower transparency in the private markets. And that's the principal way through which a retail investor can, can invest in private offerings is by qualifying as an accredited investor. So this is something that I have been focused on for quite a while. We have relied on wealth thresholds as a qualifying criteria in, in making this determination and defining what an accredited investor means. And many say that wealth may not be the best proxy for sophistication. That might be true. I mean, it's a useful way of indicating whether an investor has the financial wherewithal to bear the risk of loss. But here's the bottom line. This is what we have in place. We have wealth thresholds in place. And so if we are going to have those thresholds, we need to make sure that they're meaningful. And we have not adjusted those thresholds for 40 years, for, you know, it's been almost 40 years to account for inflation. So they're not functioning as intended. I think it's something that we should look at that doesn't foreclose potential other alternative pathways to accredited status. Just as we did last year, we opened up and said, you know, certain financial intermediaries and the like can, can also qualify. But as long as we keep those wealth thresholds, I think we need to consider adjusting them and at a minimum adjusting them going forward for inflation. So, so I had to put my plug in for that because I think that's a really important place. But let me also say this with respect to your bigger picture questions or sort of what's the broader implications maybe for the lack of transparency. And that too, I think, is a question that is ripe for study here. I mean, we have at various points in the history of the federal securities laws, we've taken a step back and we looked at the fact that a large segment of the markets were increasingly opaque and we made adjustments. Um, I mentioned this went through that history in detail in a recent speech I gave um, about kind of the markets going dark. But given the dramatic growth in, in capital raising in the private markets, and therefore the dramatically growing segment of the market that is not subject to public company disclosure obligations, I think it's time for us to look at and consider whether to reevaluate how we have that balance. There's so much capital at stake here, not, not just through individuals investors in private offerings, but through the increasing exposure, for instance, of mutual funds and pension funds to private equity. So there's a lot of retirement savings at stake in this part of our market that we cannot see clearly into. And in my view, that is worth some serious study. Commissioner, you spoke a lot about the investor perceived view of the public versus private, right? With wealth as, as a way to qualify investors to participate in the private markets. But I'm wondering if there are other ways to draw the line between the public and private markets, maybe from the company side. You know, what do you think are, are ways that we can look at that and, and consider the value of raising capital for some companies privately versus when they should be reporting publicly? Yes, um, that, that is another great question. Um, so there's, of course, there's a very important role for capital raising in the 
the private markets, and that includes supporting companies that are often just sort of on their way to going public. But it's worth asking, um, again, this is something I mentioned in a, in a recent speech, if that's in fact how the private markets are functioning right now. Are they really just kind of a stepping stone for most companies that want to grow large enough and then enter the public markets? You know, I, I think the question that we need to look at here in looking at the boundary between or the decision point between public and private is, is this. The, the, the main way that we determine when a company will become subject to periodic reporting requirements, meaning the 10K with those beautiful accounting footnotes and the 10Qs, is we count shareholders of record. That comes, uh, that's a statutory provision that Congress laid out in the 1960s. It's Section 12G of the Exchange Act. So what we say is if you cross a certain threshold for shareholders of record, right now that threshold is 2,000, or 500 for non-accredited investors, then you are subject to periodic reporting going forward. But here's the catch. We count record shareholders, not beneficial shareholders. So, so what that means is we're counting the number, we're not counting the number of shareholders that have an actual economic interest in the company. Because as you probably know, almost everyone holds shares in street name today, meaning they the shareholder of record is the financial intermediary where you hold your shares. It's J.P. Morgan Chase or UBS or whomever. And the way that we require companies to count shareholders of record requires them to look through the nominee, which would be um, a nominee of the clearinghouse, to, through to these financial intermediaries, the broker-dealers, but no further. So record ownership, as we currently define it, has no real meaningful relationship to the actual number of investors. So that means even some of the largest and most widely traded issuers don't have enough record owners, as that term is currently defined, to trigger the requirements of 12G. So I think that we need to look at and consider the way we define shareholder of record in our rules and think about whether we should be requiring companies to look through more to the actual beneficial owners, because that term has to mean something. If we have determined that, that the number of shareholders is the trigger, then we need to have that number be a meaningful one and not a random one that is connected to simply where you might happen to hold your shares. If, if 300,000 people all hold through Merrill Lynch, it's just one, it shows up as one shareholder I think others have looked at different ways that we might consider triggering reporting obligations, like looking at the public float or looking at market cap or number of employees or the like. But right now, the law says you look at the number of shareholders, and that's what we, you know, that's how we determine whether a company is large enough to trigger ongoing reporting requirements. And I would submit that um, that term, because of the way markets have developed and people hold in street name has been rendered um, far less meaningful, and we need to take a look at it. Right. So we've we've covered a lot of ground, and I actually want to want to pause for a second because we've mentioned a speech that you gave uh, in October, I believe, Commissioner. Um, and I would encourage folks to go back and and read it. It's a very helpful speech. It's called "Going Dark: The Growth of Private Markets and the Impact on Investors and the Economy." You can, of course, find that at sec.gov, and we'll put a link to it in our show notes. 
you know, on the show today, we've talked a little bit about Rule 506 offerings, um, the the accredited investor definition and wealth thresholds, a little bit about record ownership and how we might rethink that framework. And you've also talked today and other times, Commissioner, about um, whether we should do studies to better understand the impact of the, the shift from public to private markets or the, the lack of transparency in the private markets. So any number of things that the SEC might take up from a policy or regulatory standpoint. And I'm wondering if there are changes we should expect to see in this space uh, in, in the near or medium term. Well, I will say this. I hope so. Um, and as you know, the chair is the one who, who sets and, and controls the agenda. But if you look at our unified agenda from, from last spring, it does show some emphasis on, on looking at the private markets, including looking at the accredited investor definition, which we, we touched on. It includes looking at Form D, um, something we haven't discussed yet, but as you know, Form D or Regulation D offerings make up a huge segment of capital raising in the private market. And I think we need to look at greater transparency and greater utility of Form D because we have very limited insight right now into how that segment of the market works. I mean, back in 2013, we proposed some amendments aimed at enhancing the visibility into that market by requiring, for example, a, a closing amendment for Form D by potentially enhancing some of the information that's required on Form D. And we never finished those amendments. So I do think we need to go back and look at them revisit them. Again, that's it's mentioned in the in the fall unified agenda. So I hope what that means is we'll, we'll be seeing something on that in, in the near to medium term, because in my view, enhanced transparency in, in the private market is, is extremely worthy of commission attention. So again, you know, watch, keep, keep your eyes peeled too for the new unified agenda that's coming up that will give a little bit more insight. And I think that should be out relatively soon into what the chair's priorities in the space may be. But I'm hopeful it's a credit investor and certainly um, Form D. Uh, I think there's even potentially a mention of, of looking at the integration framework again, which I would love to see. We will see. Uh, watch this space. Excellent. I love the scoop coming here to the Insecurities Podcast, Commissioner. Thank you. Another topic we want to get your thoughts on is ESG, or environmental, social, and governance-related issues. It's been a big topic for the securities and accounting world over the past few years, with a focus on what companies are doing regarding that set of ESG topics that may not currently be independently or uniquely disclosed to investors as an element of normal financial reporting and operations. Those beautiful accounting footnotes have not yet been updated to touch specifically on ESG. So uh, as an aside here, Kurt, I got a quick pop quiz for you. Uh oh. How many episodes of the Insecurities Podcast have discussed ESG? Oh, my goodness. Um, what is this, 54? How about 10? You're almost right there. We're at seven, seven right. episodes. We've heard from George Wilson at PLI, law professors Karen Woody and James Park, former SEC chief accountant Wes Bricker, SEC commissioner Hester Peirce, and, and you and I even did a rundown of the coverage on ESG of this year's SEC Speaks Conference. Yep. Yep. I'd encourage our listeners interested in ESG issues to revisit those episodes uh, if you haven't heard them already. But similar to the Insecurities podcast, the SEC and, and Commissioner Lee, you've covered a lot of ground regarding ESG in 2021. During your time serving as the acting chair, uh, you opened a request for comment on climate disclosures, for which the SEC has published more than 640 
comment letters. Uh, the Enforcement Task Force focused on climate and ESG issues was created, and the Division of Examinations issued a risk alert regarding the topic of, quote, ESG investing. Uh, you've also commented on the many facets of the ESG discussion in your speeches this year. So at this point, I think we can all agree that investors would like public companies to offer more meaningful ESG disclosures, certainly as they relate specifically to climate risk and sustainability issues. But the conversation around climate risk or more broadly ESG often turns on questions about whether we as a framework and as regulators in the market can develop suitable metrics, criteria, or other reporting standards. There have been efforts by the SASB, the European Commission, and others to provide those standards and some guidance in that space. So I put it to you, Commissioner, what is the SEC's role in helping elicit decision-useful data on climate and ESG topics to help investors price that risk and allocate their capital appropriately? Well, that is a good um, question. And it's, of course, one that many of us are focused on. And I'm sure it's one of the reasons why it's it's um, such a frequent topic for, for your podcast, but it's certainly also a very frequent topic of conversation among you know market participants. Um, I, I've had hundreds of these conversations over the last couple of years, and I have spent quite a bit of time um, looking at and, and thinking about and researching this. Start with this disclosure. We're talking about disclosure. What can the SEC do to help elicit the right data here? And that is that is a very important part of what we do at the commission, right? That is our that is one of our main functions, getting the data out there. That's what makes markets function well. That's what, as you mentioned, that's what helps investors price risk accurately and allows them to make informed decisions on how to allocate their capital. So good disclosure of the risks and the opportunities that businesses face because of climate change and other ESG topics is key to investors. And they have been making that clear for quite some time. So we've seen, as a result, a significant increase in climate and ESG disclosure over the last decade or so. Some of that has come as a result of the guidance that we issued, the commission issued in, in 2010 connected to climate risk. But it's also a, a lot of the increased disclosure is because of the work that investors have done by demanding enhanced disclosure. It's because of the work that issuers have done in response to those demands. And it's as you mentioned, these voluntary standard setters and others have done a tremendous amount to help facilitate that disclosure. But where are we? There are still big gaps in the data. There are many companies that simply aren't disclosing information. There are you know, some companies that do disclose, don't disclose all of the same information all of the time. And so, so voluntary disclosure can be very difficult to compare from company to company or even period to period for the same company. And finally, you know, there are questions about how reliable is the data that's being disclosed is. Who, if anyone, is validating that information? Is it audited? Is there any third party going in to help these companies and understand how to get the data right? So we know from companies that it's very hard to know what they are supposed to be disclosing. Now, there's a proliferation of, of voluntary standards, a proliferation of demands on companies it, it sort of um, data aggregators and, and raters and the like. And I think we've reached the limit of what voluntary disclosure can achieve. So the SEC, we are in a position to help provide certainty for investors and issuers alike. We can, we can work to come up with a rule that will set a uniform standard, help level the playing field for reporting, and to help fill those informational gaps. So that course, will facilitate the pricing and the capital allocation, but it will also provide certainty to issuers 
and, and potentially promote reliability. So disclosure can also, I think, here's another piece that I think is, is we need to keep our eye on, and that is disclosure will provide fundamentally important transparency around the systemic risk to financial markets that's posed by climate change. So all of this is needed by investors. It's needed by policymakers and the public. And I think, um, you know, I think we are ripe right now at the SEC to actually add value to this long-going effort. So I think you're you're right, uh, of course, that this is a moment for the for the SEC potentially to to step in and help set standards. But the SEC probably can't do it alone, or or maybe it shouldn't. You know, I'd like your view on that because there are a number of other regulators or quasi regulatory bodies out there that are grappling with these same issues, trying to go about the job of standard setting, so that I think you can have you know consistent, comparable you know metrics or criteria. Regardless of where an investor may be or, or where a company may be headquartered, so you know, I wonder what your view is on collaborating uh, both domestically and internationally on climate and ESG issues with uh, with with some of your your partners uh, around the world. Sure, I, I mean, let's start with this: the mar- our markets are global, um, and the systemic risk that's posed by climate, in particular, that's a global problem. So. We need strong regulatory cooperation, both domestic, but also importantly, internationally. I mean, this is not the kind of risk that you want various financial regulators looking at and considering in silos. And we aren't. You know, we have FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council. It's there specifically to bring financial regulators together to look at risks to financial stability. And FSOC is, is currently engaged on climate. They, they recently released a, a very comprehensive report on these issues last month. That's reflective of coordination among U.S. financial regulators. But internationally, we have both the FSB and IOSCO, the International Organization of Securities Commissioners. And we at the SEC actively participate in both organizations. So IOSCO has, I think, Several work streams, maybe three work streams currently related to sustainability, and it's already issued two reports, one related to issuer disclosures, and I think uh, the second one was related to the asset management space. So you're already seeing strong efforts at regulatory cooperation in the space, and, and we need to take a coordinated approach, as you mentioned, to sustainability reporting. We've also got efforts by the IFRS, the um, International Financial Reporting Standards, to develop an international sustainability standards board. They're calling it the ISSB. The SEC has been involved in that effort through IOSCO, um, and I hope that there we're going to see something take shape where you could have various jurisdictions that are in various stages of developing their own reporting regimes, but they can look to that regime. There are going to be a lot of sequencing questions here as everyone kind of proceeds on parallel tracks, but we have a lot of good work you mentioned that's already been done by groups like TCFD, like what was called SASB or SASB, it's now called VRF, the Value Reporting Foundation. There's um, there's an alphabet soup of of these types of groups out there, but they've done amazing work and they've managed to get a pretty good fairly wide buy-in. So nobody is starting from scratch. And where I hope that we'll land internationally is with a a sort of an international baseline. So there's a measure of commonality across jurisdictions, not a buffet approach where everyone can kind of take a little of this or a little of that, whatever, whatever suits them, but hopefully instead a minimum set of disclosures that will look similar across jurisdictions 
and then allow each individual jurisdiction to tailor them as they need for their specific markets and economy. You talked a little about jurisdiction in those specific markets. Let's circle back to the first part of our conversation today. If those rules and those frameworks are developed, do you see those directives reaching the capital in the private market space? That is a really good question because, as you know, public company disclosure requirements don't apply to private mm-hmm. companies. We don't have beautiful accounting footnotes. Well, maybe That's we do right. in some cases, but they're not required. <laughs> so, um, so you know, if the if the commission ultimately adopts new disclosure requirements for public companies in this space, they, um, you know, they will apply to public companies, not to private companies. But there is a knockoff, a knock-on effect from public company disclosure requirements. I mean, you know, after all, private companies provide audited financials in many instances when, when they don't have to. So you might see some private companies make that choice with respect to climate and ESG disclosures. They're competing for capital as it relates to climate and ESG, just like public companies are. So I think a, a unified climate and ESG reporting regime could help them do that. Um, but again, you know, they don't have to. So um, that is something that we, and I use we meaning broadly policymakers and and potentially lawmakers need to be thinking about. I think it remains to be seen how we should address that. So, I mean, I'm open to to ideas and thoughts, and I've I've solicited them uh, from from many market participants over, over a long span of time. So, what should we be looking at? Could we, for example, consider certain climate disclosure requirements for some of the largest of the private companies, or should we be thinking about potentially placing conditions on on some of the private market exemptions in certain circumstances. These are at least questions that we should be asking, you know, given the uh, amount of capital in private markets and the importance of climate in particular when it comes to financial markets. Are, are we expecting any development? You know, we talked a lot about how those bodies will work together to hopefully develop some guidance or, or at least a framework to think so. Any thoughts on when or, or any timelines for when that might be announced or implemented? Well, you know, I mean, the chair have said, I think publicly, that he's hoping to see a climate proposal by by the end of the year, um, or maybe maybe early next year. That's that's aspirational. So I, I can't say whether we'll necessarily meet that goal, but it does give you a sense of the ballpark of what the chair has has said um, to sort of directed the staff to work towards. So you can also see from the spring unified agenda that we've got human capital and board diversity on on there as well. But I can't tell you for sure what the timing will be other than to say that I know it has been a, a top priority for this chair. Um, and so I personally am hoping without um, being able to sort of say specifically that, that we will see something by, you know, around the end of the year or maybe early next year. So, you know, because we like to ask questions that you can't answer, uh, I'll, take, <laughs> right. I'll, I'll have another one. Uh, you know, we've got the the enforcement task force. I think a lot of people like me uh, and, and others uh, in the defense bar have been have been watching for more enforcement actions in the space. And maybe those relate to um, climate risk disclosures or some other voluntary disclosures that, that a public company makes and just want to see how the enforcement staff is going to look at that or what those actions might look like. So, I mean, can you tell us when we might see some enforcement in the space or or what it will even look like? Sure. I mean, you're, you're right to, to identify that I, I can't speak to any specific enforcement actions, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. but let me try ne- nevertheless to, to kind of get at what I think, what I think you're asking. Let me, let me start with this. 
we've had the 2010 guidance out there, right, for 11 years. Um, so, so, so that there are existing obligations. It's not that don't just arise from the 2010 guidance, but also any number of other places where both climate and ESG currently hits existing accounting requirements and other things. So enforcement is already in that space. And they're already enforcing the rules that are on the books now. But the commission adopts ultimately new disclosure rules. Enforcement will be there to enforce that. I mean, in other words, they have plenty of experience with effectively enforcing no new rules and that it won't be any different in the climate and ESG space other than just that they'll, you know, we need to give companies some time to understand and absorb what's required of them to to spend some time getting it right, especially some of the more complex areas like scenario analysis and the like. But I do think you can expect to see enforcement on some of these once again, once they're up and and running the the newer rules, because otherwise without enforcement, the rules can be relatively meaningless. So we do have to make sure that we have somebody who's focused on on this space. And, And again, Enforcement's already doing that with respect to the rules on the books. You saw, you mentioned the new um, comment process and how much has has changed there. So companies are already being educated. I think the staff is helping them get to a place where they have a better understanding of what the current rules require. And and enforcement has a last, um, hopefully that won't occur for most companies, but but enforcement will be there to make sure that, um, that those who are playing by the rules are not disadvantaged by those who are not. All right, Commissioner, on to some questions we know you can answer. (laughs) You are a self-identified expert and fan of the long-running television series and universe, pun intended, of Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek. Uh, The original series debuted in the late 60s with William Shatner's iconically slow fist fight against the dreaded Gorn, introducing the much maligned double fist punch. And for you listeners out there, if you don't know what we're talking about, go out to your favorite search engine and type in the phrase worst fight scene ever <laughs> to enjoy that that somewhat forgettable start to to Star Trek, which obviously has has been wildly successful and moved on to a variety of different television series to date. Uh, many fanboys and fan gals out there debate which of those series is the best. Commissioner, what's your favorite? Well, I, I guess I would say I, I'm not sure I, I see the debate because, in my view, it's almost certainly Voyager. Um, but you know, uh-huh. I'm a big fan of Captain Janeway. Um, so yeah, I, I love the opportunity to to delve into my my true area of expertise. Um, I love the original series. Just a of any true uh, Trekkie would, but I have to say I, I always um, I, I've watched all of the subsequent various series and, and Captain Janeway and Voyager, my favorite. Have you been watching Picard on Paramount Plus? Of course! Oh my goodness, that's like one of the few things that I watch as it comes out. I don't wait for the whole season, so I absolutely have. Um, and if you could see. Uh, my my workspace, you you would you would see uh, an action figure in, on my desk of of Picard. You would see a mouse pad with Captain Janeway's face. I have a Romulan warbird on my desk. Um, so yes, <laughs> uh, I love it. 
Appointment viewing for an SEC commissioner. That's that's breaking news as well. Uh, one potential intersection of Star Trek with our securities markets, and admittedly, there's probably too many to even go into, but one I'd like to focus on is the parity between the shift to what's being called a, quote, post-scarcity society in the Next Generation series and beyond. Star Trek goes to great lengths to, to create a social construct that doesn't involve money or other consumption or earning-based value. The show even does kind of a compare and contrast in certain instances with lesser societies of the Federation, such as the Ferengi, who are often described as a foil to the Federation and exemplifying the businessmen aspects of our U.S. culture in the 90s and 2000s. So when it comes to a post-scarcity or eliminating consumption-based social standing, Many comparisons can be drawn to the theory and objectives of distributed ledger technology and cryptocurrency. And Commissioner, I know this hasn't been one of your focuses relative to some of your other commissioners, but do you think there's a post-scarcity future here in which cryptocurrency frees humanity to explore strange new worlds, (laughs) to seek out new life and new civilizations, and to boldly go where no man has gone before? (laughs) No man or woman, I'll add. That's right. Yes. So so that's a (laughs) That's a that's a very interesting question, and it's an interesting way of posing it. So, obviously, we are not in a post scarcity society. Um, we don't have replicators, you know. So we we have plenty of people who don't have enough to eat. This is this is not the society that we live on live in. And I guess um, I would need to have a little bit more insight into how crypto might get us there. I'm not. Um, uh, that's that's not to say that there isn't a lot of promise in crypto, and there certainly is. And I want to see that innovation unlocked, um, and and I want us to be able to use it for its full potential. Um, but for now, what I would say is, you mentioned the Ferengi, um, and uh, you know they have their their famous rules of acquisition. Um, and what I would say is, I, I feel like crypto needs some rules of acquisition um, at this point in time, but otherwise very hopeful about that innovation and, um, you know, we'll see where it takes us. So you may or may not know, Commissioner, that there is a surprisingly large body of legal scholarship that has built up around Star Trek. <laughs> there are uh, there there are law review articles and books. Uh, some popular titles are Star Trek, Visions of Law and Justice, uh, Star Trek and Starry Decisis, and The Law of the Federation. And one of the themes in in these works is how justice is sort of portrayed in in the future, in in the Star Trek world, and whether or not that sort of comports with some of our common notions of justice, uh, you know, today. There, there's an episode that I think sort of plays this out. It's, um, It's from The Next Generation, but... Essentially, uh, Wesley Crusher ends up on a planet, and and you can save commentary on on Wesley Crusher <laughs> for your response because it's a fairly divisive character, uh, or maybe not. Um, but he ends up on this on this planet where he he sort of like breaks a rule, right? And he doesn't he doesn't understand that he's broken a rule, and the only punishment for people who break rules there because it never happens is death. And so you end up with this weird scene where Picard is actually down there trying to negotiate uh, to to get Crusher to come back up to the to the starship with them. And there's an interesting there's an interesting back and forth um, where where Crusher's mom says, uh, you know, my son had no warning that his act was criminal. And and the mediator says the person on the planet says we cannot allow ignorance of the law to become a defense. 
And Picard jumps in with this speech and he says, I, I don't know how to communicate this or even if it is possible, but the question of justice has concerned me greatly of late. And I say to any creature who may be listening, there can be no justice so long as laws are absolute. Even life itself is an exercise in exceptions. And Riker follows up with, when has justice ever been as simple as a rule book? I was thinking about this because it, it reminds me, um, perhaps uh, joking, of course, with, uh, of some conversations I've had with the staff over the years where it feels oh. like, uh, like, you know, there, there are no exceptions or things are absolute or perhaps people were, were genuinely ignorant of, of the law. And I think people are a little worried about the, the tone we're hearing um, from an enforcement standpoint right now. So I guess I just, you know, I, I wonder what are, what are your views as having been on the enforcement staff, uh, having been a salsa of, of enforcement? I mean, what is, what is it going to look like? Is it going to be a, uh, a, a very rigid uh, enforcement program going forward? Well, that was quite a lead-in to that, um, yeah. that question. <laughs> what a setup. I, I do remember that episode really well um, because of the uh, profound consequences. He, like, chased a ball onto the grass or something. And what I also exactly. remember, if I'm not mistaken, is at the end of that episode, despite all of the pleas and, and whatever else, they still ended up having to sort of use some kind of force or trickery to get them all out of there at the last minute because – they weren't they weren't being heard. Um, if, I, if I remember right. right, that that was the that was the finale there. Um, that is not, I think, what you can expect at the commission. Um, I I do think that we and I know from experience of over a decade um, in enforcement, we listen carefully and thoughtfully to um, it, long before the Wells process even starts um, to to what companies have to say about what happened at their firm. And of course. There are any number of different iterations of this, but I don't think rigidity is part of our program. I think fairness is an important part of the program, and I think we have to make sure that we are consistent and that we don't back down when we are facing, you know, larger resourced defendants and the like. Um, I think that's important to keep kind of a level playing field, but I have never found rigidity in application or our failure to consider extraneous circumstances, certainly considering motive and scienter and those type of things, a part of our process. We listen willingly because we, you know, we understand that we have a very important and awesome responsibility when it comes to enforcement. And I think the staff takes their need to be fair and thoughtful in how it's applied quite seriously. And then of course, the check on that all the way up at the commission level. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the enforcement program. And that is not to say that um, we can't improve it. And so I'm always open to hearing ways in which you think we might be able to improve it. Well, I, I appreciate the very candid response, although I, I will note that you very obviously sidestepped the question about uh, Leslie Crusher and Will Wheaton. Um, so <laughs> so I don't have enough time to, to go into that. But Will Wheaton has a great presence on Twitter, I'll just throw in. I don't know if you're familiar with his Twitter feed. Yeah, yeah. He's a lot of fun to follow. He I, I love it. And uh, I also liked the show Big Bang Theory when he had a recurring role on there where he was sort of yes, like yes. the foil for Sheldon, which I loved. So yeah, no, all, all over it. But a good recommendation for our listeners. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Well, Commissioner Lee, thank you so much for joining us today on Insecurities. I appreciate the opportunity to, to have joined you today. And I very much appreciate your interest both in private markets and climate and ESG. These are two really pressing issues that I think the commission should be looking at. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast, and a special thanks to our guest, SEC Commissioner Allison Heron-Lee. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. Thank you.